0: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Oya Dursun Askanja to discuss her new book, Turkey-West Relations, The Politics of Intra-Alliance Opposition, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. How do we make sense of ter- Turkey's recent turn against the West? After decades of Turkish cooperation, and desire to be integrated into the European and wider Western community. Today's book interrogates the dynamics of the relationship between Turkey and the West, particularly the EU, NATO, and the United States. The book develops a framework of intra-alliance opposition to explain this shift from Turkey's engagement with the West as a desirable ally to Turkey's increasingly hostile relationship to the West after 2010. Moving beyond the power and personality of Erdogan, Dursun Askanja develops an analytic framework of the politics of intra-alliance opposition and provides a comprehensive and nuanced account of how and why Turkish foreign policy has changed within the transatlantic alliance. She offers three categories of intra-alliance opposition behavior, boundary testing, boundary challenging, boundary breaking, and focuses on levels of intensity. Her three categories allow her to differentiate between the motivations behind the use of each tool. The book concludes with three possible alternatives for Turkey's relations with the West. Dr. Dersun Akanja is the Endowed Chair of International Studies and Professor of Political Science at Elizabethtown College. She's edited two books, The European Union as an Actor in Security Sector Reform, published by Rutledge in 2014, and External Interventions in Civil Wars, co-edited with Stefan Wolf, Rutledge 2014. As a scholar focused on Turkish foreign policy, transatlantic security, European Union, Southeast Europe, and peace operations, I'm delighted to welcome Oya to the New Books Network. Hello. Hello. Let's start with how you came to be interested in this particular puzzle involving Turkey's change of direction in its policy and rhetoric towards the West. How did this start? Uh, when did the research begin?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm a scholar of transatlantic security relations, so I have always been interested in uh, Turkish foreign policy in the framework of transatlantic security relations, and uh, the book itself actually uh, uh, was a sequel to my already existing research portfolio from, uh, uh, you know, uh, a decade earlier, and the book itself started as a completely different project, to be very honest with you. And uh, the way it started was uh, the book was supposed to be uh, focusing on uh, Turkish foreign policy in the Western Balkans. And uh, I have run uh, the idea by a few editors and uh, completely uh, came to the conclusion that uh, it would be better uh, to focus on a broader topic. So uh, as you can see in the book, uh, there is a chapter on Turkish foreign policy in the Western Balkans, but the book itself has um, uh, basically em- embraced a much more broader uh, scope than that uh, and added a few more case studies uh, ranging from uh, Turkey's uh, veto over NATO-EU, security cooperation, uh, Turkish energy security policies, Turkish rapprochement with Russia on security and defense uh, affairs. Uh, Turkish foreign policy in Iraq and Syria, uh, as well as the Turkey EU refugee crisis. So you can see the scope of the book has been expanded as a result of my uh, give and take with the editors of major uh, publishers. Uh, so, uh, But um, it is uh, it has been p- particularly challenging to write this book because um, as I wanted to make this a book about Turkey's relations with the West, Turkey's relations with the West was really deteriorating at a a really intense speed uh, as I was writing. And it almost felt like trying to uh, shoot a moving target, uh, which is an analogy that I don't normally like to use uh, because of my pacifist nature. But uh, certainly it felt like that. So uh, I had to have a very flexible um, uh, mentality about my approach to this book. And I had to come up with a flexible enough framework uh, that would accommodate these fast changing dynamics of the relationship. So uh, that was uh, what I intended to do. Uh, as I started to work on the book and um, a funny story uh, I went to uh, London School of Economics um, as a visiting scholar uh, in the summer of 2013 which marks the official beginning of the book actually and I took my two and a half month old son uh, with me uh, to London School of Economics alone (laughs) as a new mom so uh, but my colleagues there have been extremely supportive and uh, we uh, exchanged in a lot of intellectual debates about what more needs to be added into this analysis. And later on, I have been fortunate enough to receive a sabbatical research grant from uh, the Institute of Turkish Studies at Georgetown University to continue this research. And uh, it finally published uh, got published at the end of 2019. So that has been my journey. Actually, I as I was reading your acknowledgements about
0: having the baby in tow, about the fact that it was welcoming there, uh, it really struck me that your acknowledgements would be exceptionally helpful for young scholars. And the reason is because you credit many people who are in your subfield, many people who you know who study things very close to what you study. You also credit people who do not, people who are with you at Elizabethtown College, who have read the manuscript, you talk about the various places that you've studied, like Georgetown, uh, that that allowed you to have yet another chance at uh, either changing the direction, enhancing the analysis. And so I I guess I just want to call out that for the young scholars listening to this who are in the midst of writing their books, this is kind of a good place to go. And I, and I, I thought it was useful that you actually talked about family, that you talked about that you had your first child in tow <clears throat> at one point <clears throat> as you were heading out uh, and then uh, the second one later. So I think that's really, really useful for, for people to think about. And, and, and as they put together the narrative of the story of, of the book, Um, Let me talk to you a little bit about method, because the book depends upon extensive fieldwork. And you did more than 200 semi-structured elite interviews conducted with um, diplomats, with officials, with uh, academics, with journalists. You were all over the place. You were in Turkey, Serbia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Cyprus, the UK, US, and Germany. Uh, And and if I'm not wrong, some of that was also done with a child in tow. So, so why this particular methodology for the cases that you laid out before? You know, they're wide ranging cases and you've picked them, you say, because in fact, Turkey was a moving target. And it was hard to figure out like, what is Turkey? And so one case wouldn't be sufficient. If I understand it correctly, that's why the multiple cases... But but why this particular methodology? How does the field work and the interviews all come together to, to help create the book?
1: This is an excellent question. Uh, Semi-structured elite interviews are not normally used in balancing studies, by the way. Uh, And uh, I have received a a comment from a reviewer um, in an earlier version of this book uh, saying that this is the first uh, study that incorporates elite interviews into the study of balancing. But this is so important to me as a scholar because balancing is all about intentions as well as capabilities. So in order to really delineate uh, intentions, I think it is really important to talk to as many elites, as many leaders, as many intellectuals as possible to be able to understand and outline what the intentions are. So that has been my um, um, thinking uh, in terms of incorporating this methodology. so
0: look, there's been a lot of other works in international relations that focus on the challenges to NATO and the liberal international order, but, but they've focused more on the Cold War, on intrastate conflict, on violent non-state actors. You know, how is it that your work both builds on this scholarship, but more importantly, how is it that this presents some sort of unique contribution to our understanding of, of the Turkish case?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, we are at a very important turning point in international affairs. The international system is certainly changing. We no longer live in a unipolar world where the United States is serving as the sole hegemon. So, uh, its power is increasingly challenged, which means that a lot of countries around the world have to adjust their strategies accordingly. And NATO is the world's leading security uh, and defense alliance. Uh, in the world. And it is uh, the the longest lasting alliance in the world. And it is still to this day has been quite successful in delivering its uh, raison d'etre. So uh, I think that um, in that sense, it is really important to look at intra alliance opposition because uh, alliances' health will be based on uh, whether there is coherence, whether there is unity within the alliance. So that has been my um, uh, main motivating uh, point uh, to see how second tier powers like Turkey are acting within an alliance that is this important and how it will it impact uh, the future of the alliance as well. Um, so when in
0: the book, when you're breaking down this intra-alliance opposition behavior, you have these three different categories. And if I understand it correctly, and I'm not an IR person, everybody on this podcast is, has heard me say this uh, before. The but it is the breaking down of into these three categories, and that is special, I think, about your methodology. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about how it is that this 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 method in a sense, really is part of the contribution, not just this content about Turkey and exactly how it's behaving.
1: Yes, uh, I'm glad you asked that question, Susan. I think that um, this book incorporated soft balancing literature, and soft balancing has done a lot in terms of intra alliance opposition behavior. But one thing that was missing in the literature was the way uh, some statecraft tools have been defined and have been classified based on the in- intensity of these tools. So what I have uh, aspired to do and hope to uh, have done uh, in the book is that uh, I classified different tools of statecraft based on their intensity. And I defined these three uh, different categories of intra alliance opposition behavior. Uh, and uh, it is boundary uh, testing, boundary challenging, and boundary breaking. So uh, in the uh, book, there is a Venn diagram uh, that shows uh, how uh, different. Different tools of statecraft have been classified into these three different categories. But one thing that is so crucial to my analysis is to emphasize that there is convergence between these different categories. Uh, three different c- categories of intra alliance opposition so um, and there is continuum between these three different categories of intra alliance opposition as well the book uh, also provides a definition of these tools of statecraft so that there is no confusion in terms of uh, what every statecraft tool uh, represents in terms of diplomatic and uh, military types of behavior
0: so there's some people out in the audience that don't know what soft balancing is. So give them the the the, the 101.
1: Yes, so soft balancing is an intra alliance opposition behavior, uh, and you are trying to balance uh, uh, your ally in this case, so which makes it soft balancing, and you are using, uh, while doing this uh, balancing behavior, you are using mainly economic and diplomatic means to balance against your ally, and your goal is to make your position stronger in, uh, in the near term.
0: Oh, fabulous. Okay, that was great.
1: Um, okay, so
0: this is a case study <clears throat> with multiple cases. This is these sort of 200 interviews, which I want to ask you about in a second. But how much of what you say about the three categories, the motivations, the intensity, how much of that could be generalized to other cases like is this is this a book that you intend to be contributing to the study of other cases or is it is it only explaining this particular case
1: no i think that it is applicable to any other cases of soft balancing uh, in terms of uh, really delineating the intensity of the opposition behavior within an alliance so it can be easily transferable uh, in fact there are many studies that are conducted on that front and there is a renewed interest right now because of the shifts in the international system systemic balance of power uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, scholarly works that are working on on the uh, balancing behaviors of second tier powers. And this uh, book's uh, inter-alliance opposition framework is easily applicable to those cases as well. Uh, Thanks. So uh, when
0: you were doing these interviews and you mentioned in the acknowledgements that in fact, you thank those people and you have to make them anonymous, but nevertheless, you're sort of reaching out to thank them. So talk a little bit about those interviews and the extent to which uh, you learn something about doing these interviews or the challenges of doing such interviews in uh, particularly with people who might be compromised by sharing with uh, an, an, a Western academic.
1: Mm-hmm. Excellent question. I think that uh, for me, it uh, it wasn't a big of a challenge because I'm a scholar that have employed uh, that has employed uh, semi-structured elite interviews uh, in her previous works as well. So I am pretty uh, comfortable uh, in uh, conducting these interviews. One thing that I have learned early on is the need to be very flexible. So uh, not everyone is going to be willing to answer your question especially if it is going to be on such a sensitive issue. Uh, and that's why, by the way, uh, I made the editorial decision to uh, anonymize my interviewees' names because we were in the middle of an a emergency, uh, emergency case uh, and uh, we have uh, had to uh, make sure that uh, our interviewees' identities uh, are not compromised because uh, at that time, uh, especially the Turkish... Uh, government has been uh, apprehending a lot of uh, journalists and uh, intellectuals um, and um, unfortunately also uh, dismissing a number of public servants. So I had to make that editorial decision in order to be a responsible uh, scholar so that uh, I'm not jeopardizing, I'm not endangering anyone's livelihood um, uh, or uh, their career uh, by making their names um, obvious to my readers so uh, but yes you have to uh, have a very flexible mentality not everyone is going to answer your questions and uh, you will try to uh, get as much uh, information as possible Um, uh, and uh, you you will want to also engage in process tracing as well to triangulate the uh, information that you receive from your interviewees because some of them are state representatives and there are certain uh, things that they have to be talking about, uh, and there are certain confines to their rhetoric. So you have to be mindful of that as well and run it against the uh, empirical evidence that you can collect from uh, additional resources.
0: Thanks so much. No, it's a, it's a remarkable, it's, a, it's just remarkable to even imagine doing, let alone to have done it. Um, before we get into the book, so the book is interesting. It's, uh, it's really well-written. Uh, as I've said, I know very little about Turkey and I'm not an IR person, but, uh, it's well-written. You explain things, you're covering a lot of ground. I don't think we can cover all of the cases, but I, so I think what we'll do is, is first back up a little bit and, and get, uh, everyone on the same page about, about Turkey's political history. Uh, uh have you talked just a little bit about Turkey's sort of first version of itself in which it was engaging with the West? Um, and then talk a little bit about where we are now? And then we'll talk about some of the chapters and some of the of the cases. But give us give us the sort of one oh one for for those of us who have not been following Turkey as carefully as as you have and perhaps are overly influenced. By the moment that we are living in, in which Erdogan's name is everywhere, and we sort of have this understanding of Turkey as, as headed by this strongman politics.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Turkey really holds a very important strategic importance for the transatlantic alliance, just simply because of the location that it is is on the world map. So uh, for that reason, if you look at any significant issue that is related to uh, Western foreign policy making, these issues are happening in the immediate neighborhood of Turkey. So uh, which really uh, makes uh, sure that uh, we as the scholars of international relations play uh, place an important role on, on this analysis of Turkish uh, foreign policy as well as Turkish domestic political development. So uh, ever since 2002, we had Justice and Development Party uh, in power in Turkey and uh, they have come to power making promises about democratic reform. And over the course of years, they have conducted a number of important democratic reforms opening reforms. Uh, however, uh, the pace of the reforms have started to slow down uh, with 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. And uh, Turkish foreign policy also made a big opening of uh, zero problems with neighbors under Davutoglu's uh, foreign ministerial uh, position. Um, and uh, we have seen, however, um, that foreign policy and that initial opening up uh, failed uh, quite miserably. Um, uh, the foreign policy aspect of it really failed uh, with the Arab Spring movement uh, back in 2010. And uh, we have seen, that Turkey has uh, not been able to really maintain uh, what has been desired originally to maintain zero problems with neighbors. In fact, I uh, often joke that Turkey has uh, zero neighbors without problems right now. So uh, it is uh, increasingly emerging as a hard power, as a regional power uh, that, you, that is willing to use hard power. And uh, we have seen uh, with that, uh, we have seen increasing tendencies for uh, authoritarianism. And uh, we have seen that uh, ever since the Gezi Park movement, uh, Gezi Park protests uh, back in 2013, uh, the government has been using uh, force against the protesters. And uh, we have seen uh, with the uh, attempted coup uh, back in July 2016, we have seen uh, Turkish governments uh, declare emergency rule, and as a result of that, all rights have been uh, put uh, to the side, and uh, a lot of people, over hundreds of thousands of people have been dismissed from their public service. Many are still in in prison, and uh, they have not been able to, unfortunately, um, have access to their pensions and so on and so forth. So um, Up until this year, Turkey has been the number one country with journalists, the the highest number of journalists in jail, for instance. Uh, This year only it has been surpassed by China. Uh, So very interesting uh, human rights implementation track on that front. So, you said that you
0: started this book really wanting to write about Turkish foreign policy in the Western Balkans. So, let's, and, and chapter two is in fact about that and, uh, and focuses on you know, that region's geostrategic importance to the EU, to NATO, and Turkey. So, so, tell us a little bit about your argument involving this case study, why it's so important, and, and how it helps explain this turn this that Turkey takes.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think that uh, it is a great illustration of the potential avenues of cooperation within the alliance when it comes to uh, the alliance's approach towards the Western Balkans. Uh, The alliance itself, the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization Alliance itself, has been highly uh, invested uh, in in this particular region ever since the 1990s, the start of the civil wars in the region, Uh, it has been an important responder uh, to the humanitarian tragedies that have been taking place uh, in that particular region. So Turkey, along with that, uh, along with the rest of the alliance, has been one of the main proponents of humanitarian intervention in the region. So it really illustrates how Turkey uh, can work synergically uh, with the rest of the alliance in terms of bringing some good uh, some positive outcomes to the region uh, however as turkey's prospects for uh, eu membership uh, have uh, have become dimmer over time and as we all know turkey has been accepted as a candidate country for the european union at the helsinki summit in 1999 and uh, it opened up accession negotiations with the european union in 2005 and there has been this optimism Atmosphere of optimism that Turkey will eventually become a member of the European Union. But what we have quickly come to realize is that not much progress has been um, accomplished on that front in accession negotiations with the European Union. And Turkey has recognized that. And the EU at the same time has fallen into its own crises, uh, such as an identity crisis, enlargement fatigue, uh, the Eurozone crisis, economic crisis, the refugee crisis. So there have been so many crises that the EU has been trying to uh, deal with at the same time, that Turkey and the Turkish authorities have perceived a potential vacuum, a power vacuum in the region uh, where Turkey can use its uh, leverage, its diplomatic, uh, economic, as well as political leverage in the region in a way to assert in itself as uh, as an important regional power in the Western Balkans. So uh, it's, In that sense, this particular case study in the book is really wonderfully illustrating the switch, uh, the potential switch from boundary testing to boundary challenging that EU is increasingly seeing the uh, Turkish uh, side as a strategic competitor.
0: Why don't give us uh, an example of the next step of the sort of next level of intensity? If this one is our our boundary testing,
1: mm-hmm. so if you look at. Turkey's uh, uh, veto over NATO-EU security cooperation, you will see that Turkey, uh, uh, because of the admission of the Republic of Cyprus, which is not recognized by Turkey diplomatically, into the European Union, uh, Turkey has been increasingly cognizant of the fact that uh, the EU is more and more being ambitious in terms of creating its own foreign and security uh, policy, its own defense common uh, defense policy, and so on and so forth, and, and that uh, it is increasingly at odds with uh, NATO's as- aspirations. So uh, it wanted to protect the centrality of NATO in this relationship, and. Uh, Also, in order to uh, become further integrated in European security and defense networks, uh, Turkey wanted to use its veto power in NATO in a way to push the European allies to compromise when it comes to uh, having it accepted for the European Defense Agency, for instance, associate membership. So uh, there is this uh, issue linkage bargaining that is going uh, that is taking place right now uh, when it comes to NATO EU security coordination veto issue. And it is causing serious headaches to to our European allies uh, and uh, uh, to the United States uh, that uh, there is this veto that uh, says that whenever the Cypriot representatives are in the room, we cannot officially as NATO discuss uh, uh, security and defense affairs with the EU and um, And uh, Cyprus is having the same sort of veto from the EU perspective. So it is causing a major impasse in this transatlantic security relationship. So it is boundary challenging, um, uh, can be an Appropriate way of uh, saying that uh, boundary testing is a, a bit, um, uh, you know, uh, pushed aside, and uh, we have seen boundary uh, challenging. And the same is true with the uh, EU refugee uh, deal that was struck uh, between Turkey and uh, the EU uh, in um, in 2018. And we have seen that uh, as a result of that, uh, Turkey has become more and more confident about its role uh, as a gatekeeper uh, of refugees uh, en route to to, uh, Europe. And um, it has uh, tried to use its uh, uh, increased leverage uh, against the European Union. And this, we have seen it over and over again. Uh, For instance, last year after the book was published, we have seen the Turkish government wanting to protect the uh, last refuge uh, in in the Syrian territory um, uh, that wasn't under the control of the Assad government. And uh, just this time around uh, last year, around February, uh, Turkey unfortunately lost over 30 uh, Turkish soldiers, um, in the attacks by uh, Syrian government supported uh, by air, by Russia. Uh, so uh, that has been, uh, that has put Turkey in a really difficult position. And immediately the Turkish government used the refugee card by saying that we would like to have uh, the uh, the European allies support us in Idlib, in Syria, uh, against the Assad uh, government, uh, Otherwise, we are going to open up the uh, gates and uh, there will be a flow of refugees into European Union. Turkey uh, currently uh, hosts uh, about 4 million uh, refugees. Mainly, Uh, most of them are Syrian, but there are also additional uh, refugees from the Middle East and Asia as well.
0: So um, if we've had challenging and we've had I'm sorry. We've had um, testing, challenging. What what's a good
1: example of Turkey just simply breaking? So, uh, a very good example of that is the rapprochement between Turkey and Russia on security and defense affairs. Uh, So, if you look at that chapter, uh, Turkish rapprochement with Russia, uh, you will see that Turkey has engaged in an agreement to purchase uh, two S 400 surface to air uh, missile defense systems from Russia. Uh, And uh, Russia is a strategic competitor of NATO. So Turkey as a NATO ally uh, wanting to acquire this uh, system from uh, Russia was a major no-no from the perspective of the NATO allies. And uh, we have seen this before, by the way, uh, when Turkey wanted to acquire a Chinese system a few years before that. Um, and uh, in the very last minute, Turkish government has made a U-turn and decided to not to purchase the Chinese system. But the Turkish authorities have been very, very clear in terms of indicating their intentions for uh, acquiring these S-400s from Russia. In in fact, they are uh, in the Turkish territory uh, ever since last year. And we have seen uh, some uh, minor operationalizations of these S-400 uh, missile defense systems. And uh, the main concern on the part of the NATO allies is that uh, it may open the gates for uh, I- intelligence infiltration uh, by Russia against the NATO defense networks. Uh, NATO, uh, Turkey also has uh, some NATO headquarters uh, in its territories, and uh, those networks are uh, not operable. Uh, It is not advisable for them to be operating side by side. And um, um, the Turkish authorities have been saying that they are not going to be integrated into the NATO defense systems. They will be operating side by side. Um, And uh, however, it did not really uh, create the uh, desired impact on the part of the Turkish authorities. Uh, And what we have seen, uh, which is really costly for Turkish economy and for the Turkish Turkish defense sector as well, is that Turkey has been first suspended later on Uh, removed from the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter Consortium, and uh, Turkey has incurred real costs, real defense costs uh, uh, on that front. Uh, And uh, just before the Biden administration came to power, uh, the uh, upcoming Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said that uh, Turkey is acting um, increasingly acting as uh, a not an ally, and uh, even though it is an ally of us uh, under the framework of NATO. So there are serious concerns in terms of Turkey's willingness to operate from Uh, and to oppose the alliance from the outside, which is my definition of boundary breaking. So boundary testing, you are slowly testing uh, the boundaries in terms of what are the appropriate uh, sets of uh, behavior, expectations of behavior uh, with your allies within the alliance. Boundary challenging is that you are slowly but surely opposing your uh, allies, but you are still signaling to your allies allies that you are willing to operate from within the alliance. And boundary breaking is you are increasingly signaling your allies that you are interested in operating uh, from outside of the alliance by forming countervailing uh, uh, alliances, counterbalancing against your existing alliances by entering into these types of relationships. And similar to that, Turkey has been um, signaling that it wants to become a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And it kind of presented it as an alternative to NATO as well as the European Union. So Turkey basically wanted to have a, a share um, yeah. uh, uh, at the table and wanted to be treated as an equal Uh, by the NATO allies and the European Union and the United States, Uh, but uh, as its uh, prospects for becoming a member have become uh, dimmer and dimmer over time, it has uh, accordingly adjusted its strategy uh, in its dealings with the Western alliance. So uh, that has been my main argument in the book.
0: No, and you do that so beautifully in the conclusion because you make it, well, you've made it clear. So just for the uh, listeners, the the first chapter is really laying out the existing literature and showing where the gaps are and how it is that this framework of uh, intra-alliance opposition would fill some of those gaps and would enhance our understanding, not just of this case, but others. And then- you you move to each of the cases, so there's there's a chapter for each of those six cases, and then a conclusion. And there you you are, you're uh, and you summarized it really really well on the podcast. So that was terrific. That, that Turkey was experimenting in a lot of ways because they they were just trying to get some sort of equity. And it's interesting to me how the book brings out that that much of this came from the way that they had been treated as as this sort of secondary ally, maybe we'll let you in, perhaps you can, well, we know we really need you. And then there's this ratcheting up of of Turkey's experimentation. You, in the conclusion, list these three major factors behind the Turkish foreign policy behavior vis-a-vis the West. And then you also lay out these three alternative future scenarios. So, uh, Give us the short version of the three major factors and then let's talk about those three alternative uh, future scenarios since we're, we're now in that future
1: sure so uh, international systemic and regional subsystemic factors have been one of the factors to explain this uh, foreign policy behavior shift uh, because the world is changing and turkey is trying to adapt itself in order to assert itself as an emerging power as a regional power if not a world power as president erdoğan has uh, time and uh, time again uh, time and again have um, announced uh, uh, it's his aspirations that uh, he wants Turkey to become uh, a world power as well. So uh, Turkey wants to strategically position itself to resort itself as a regional power, uh, to say the very least. And against the background of U.S. wanting to um, uh, pursue a more America first type of uh, foreign policy and against the background of European Union dealing with with its own uh, internal crises, uh, we have seen Turkey uh, determining that there is a significant window of opportunity that Turkey uh, can reassert itself. Uh, so that is one factor. And the second factor is irre- irreconcilable differences and irreconcilable interests uh, between Turkey and its tra- main transatlantic allies. Uh, so we haven't had a chance to talk about but that yet in in this podcast, but uh, Turkey uh, feels like it has been betrayed by its uh, transatlantic allies, uh, in Syria especially. Uh, Why? Because in the fight uh, against ISIS, uh, the Islamic State terrorist organization, um, Turkey Turkey has for a while uh, been quite ambivalent uh, in order to join that fight against ISIS. Uh, There have been hostage-taking of Turkey citizens by ISIS. So Turkish government used this uh, as an explanation for its unwillingness to uh, engage in this fight. And while that was taking place, the United States had to be very quick in terms of deciding uh, who would be a main, pragmatic, feasible ally that can fight against the ISIS terrorist organization on the ground. And they have quickly come to the conclusion that the Kurdish allies would be the uh, appropriate uh, allies to engage in that fight on the ground. And Turkish authorities are making a case that these Syrian Kurdish uh, military groups are one-on-one, directly, uh, organically tied uh, to the PKK terrorist organization that has claimed the lives of 40,000 Turkish citizens ever since the end of the 1970s. So we are seeing that Turkish uh, allies are feeling very much betrayed. And uh, and there is, if you look at the public opinion data, a majority of the uh, Turkish public opinion Believe, sincerely believe uh, that um, the United States and the European Union are there to divide Turkey um, into different territories. So um, it is against the uh, sovereignty of Turkey. So there is this perception of a threat as well as this deeply running. Uh, uh, mistrust, uh, uh, this crisis of trust that is taking place between Turkey and the transatlantic alliance. So uh, that has been the case. And finally, Wait, uh, before you go on to the finally, so are
0: they right? If, if public opinion has this suspicion that the European Union and the United States are really not interested in Turkey, they're merely interested in them as a tool of their own goals and they're not listening. Is that true? Is it the case that that was a good analysis of, of, the, gr- of, 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 of the relationship between all of the members on the ground in the fight against ISIS and that they should have been listening or is... Yeah, where's public opinion? Correct.
1: I believe that there is a lot of propaganda taking place and uh, uh, Turkish government is also trying to shape uh, the Turkish public opinion in a way to uh, garner this anti-Western sentiments because uh, that was my third point, which is the domestic factors point. Uh, So uh, the government... uh, facing uh, severe economic challenges right now uh, would be well advised to uh, present the situation in such a black and white manner uh, so that uh, the Turkish public opinion's interest and attention would be diverted away from the economic factors that are taking place. So uh, I would say that there is uh, strategic considerations that are at play there. That's great.
0: So what about the alternatives? So going forward, do we have a track that's been worn down such that people are stuck in it, or is this something where they can change their behavior?
1: Mm -hmm. Excellent question. I think that there are three scenarios that are likely, but I think one of them is uh, much more possible uh, than the uh, other two. Uh, the scenario one uh, that I have examined was the continuation of the status quo. And uh, I don't think it is maintainable. Uh, it is uh, able to be sustained. Uh, why am I arguing that the continuation of the status quo is not something to be sustained? Uh, the reason is that uh, Turkey is going to make have to make a choice. Uh, sooner rather than later as to with whom it would like to associate itself. And uh, in that particular crux, um, uh, we will see Turkey, if Turkey is suspended as it is and removed from the Joint Strike Fighter Consortium, it means that Turkey will have to rely more and more on Russian technology, Chinese technology, rather than the European Union technology as well as the United States technology when it comes to defense affairs. So I am arguing it in the book that uh, you cannot have have it all. You cannot have the both worlds. Uh, ultimately, there will be a, a time, um, uh, a point in time where you will have to make that decision. And I am arguing in the book uh, that it would be in the best interest of uh, if Turkey would decide to go back. Um, uh, to its allies and to reconcile its differences and uh, to engage in uh, trust-building efforts so that uh, the alliance's unity coherence in the face of many strategic challenges that the alliance is facing right now is going to be uh, maintained and uh, preserved. So that is very important, I think. But because of these uh, types of behavior, especially the purchase of Uh, S-400s and uh, removal of Turkey from the um, uh, F-35 Joint Strike uh, Fighter Consortium, uh, this is going to uh, place a major dent in in the Turkish defense sector. Uh, To give you an example, Turkey was supposed to produce uh, the motors of of F-35s and F-35s are the exact... um, um, technology that S-400s are uh, designed to hunt down so you can see how irreconcilable these two are. And uh, with making a decision to operationalize the s 400s Turkey is really signaling to its s- uh, Western allies that it is willing to operate um, in opposition against the from the outside. So there is more and more signaling of um, Turkey um, uh, signaling its interests in terms of operating from outside of the NATO. Alliance. But having said that, do I think that Turkey would ever remove itself from NATO? I don't think so, uh, but it runs the danger of watering uh, the alliance down to a certain level that alliance is going to uh, simply uh, exist on the paper and maybe the allies will find additional venues uh, where they can exclude Turkey and engage in further defense cooperation. We don't know that uh, yet, but it is certainly possible because we know that the Washington Treaty does not not give the alliance any powers for, uh, for removing um, uh, particular allies from the alliance. Does the addition of Blinken and Biden uh,
0: and this very, very tightly, but yet Democratic Senate have any implications for policy in Turkey? What do we know about how biden has viewed turkey in the past blinken we've got a lot of we know we know what he's been thinking he's been around a long time what 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 do you think
1: Yes. So I think that uh, there was this special uh, uh, congenial relationship between between Turkey's Erdogan and President Trump. Uh, And that relationship was partly responsible for uh, the non-implementation of the CAATSA sanctions. Uh, This is something else that I am also covering in the book, Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. And just because of these defense procurement. Relations Turkey has with Russia, uh, uh, the, uh, the the Kaatsa sanctions were waiting to be implemented, and just before his departure from power, President Trump implemented those Karsa sanctions, uh, at least symbolically uh, against the Turkish defense sector and its leaders, uh, three leaders. So uh, we see a bipartisan support, in fact, uh, in terms of. Uh, the desire, the political will uh, to implement further sanctions against Turkey because of the path it has chosen to pursue vis-a-vis the Western alliance. Um,
0: Has there any, I I think you've actually done this beautifully throughout the podcast, but I'm going to ask you anyway, just in case something got left out. I mean, has anything happened since the book was published, which obviously you had to hand in the manuscript, before 20, the, the moment the book was published, that it either strengthens or challenges your analysis. I mean, are you sort of, are you happy with how the book has, is predicting and interpreting the things that you were not able to see?
1: Yes, I am 100% happy, I have to say. Um, And I am very proud, professionally proud, but personally extremely sad as a transatlanticist, as a firm believer of the need to uh, deeply root Turkey in this transatlantic alliance. But I have to say that the projections of the book are completely in line with what has taken place ever since the second half of the 2019. So the book itself... Uh, encompasses developments up until the first half of the 2019 and then ever since then there have been some really alarm uh, uh, bells ringing types of uh, developments that took place uh, in uh, in Turkey's relations with the West. Uh, to give you a few examples for instance uh, we have seen uh, the implementation of cuts, uh, sanctions and uh, Turkey has uh, has um, has been really upset uh, by these implementation. Turkey has been really upset with the lack of support in Idlib Syria so that has further uh, uh, garnered anti-Western sentiments uh, both among the policymaking elites as well as among the public opinion. We have also seen very importantly uh, especially this summer uh, we have seen uh, the rising intentions in the Eastern Mediterranean and we We were at the brink of a hot conflict between not only Turkey and France, but also Turkey and Greece. Uh, And uh, so we have seen really seriously uh, uh, disconcerting uh, issues, developments that are taking place in Turkey's relations with the West. So uh, once again, signaling a switch to hard balancing territory, slowly but surely. So uh, we have seen Turkey engage in a, a, a agreement of maritime delimitation with the government of national accord in Libya uh, which uh, completely ignores parts of uh, sovereign territories of uh, Greece as well as Cyprus. <laughs> so, um, and the United States um, in response to these um, uh, developments have engaged in some military training exercises with uh, with uh, Greece, for instance, uh, in that area. So we are seeing uh, a lot of conflict and potential for conflict. But having said that, um, uh, for instance, since the Turkish authorities have recently started tried to uh, engage in a charm offensive by uh, reaffirming uh, Turkey's willingness to be uh, integrated into the European Union, and uh, we have been seeing on social media all these posters that President Erdogan sent to major uh, cities in the United States, it says, love Turkey. Uh, So um, there is some uh, attempts on the part of the administration in Turkey to try to win back the uh, trust of the West. Uh, So this crisis of trust runs both ways. So, um, and I think there is some willingness on that front, which is always uh, welcome on my part because uh, of my own um, personal preferences of seeing a strong transatlantic alliance.
0: So you are... Already finishing another book, uh, which is called The Nexus Between Security Sector Reform Governance and Sustainable Development, Goal 16, An Examination of Conceptual Linkages and Policy Recommendations. And that's forthcoming by uh, the Geneva Center for Security Sector Governance. So I know you've got your hands full. Is is there anything else that you have already started I you know it's a terrible question you've just finished two books but I'll ask it anyway <laughs>
1: Well, uh, I am a workaholic, uh, a certified one. And uh, I, of course, started my third book uh, ever since. I just finalized the uh, other book, by the way. I am just uh, finalizing, uh, putting in the uh, finishing touches on the second book on security sector reform. And I am about to launch a third book project. And this time about the regional uh, uh, changes in the balance of power in the eastern Mediterranean. Mediterranean. This is going to be an excellent sequel to my uh, current book that we have discussed, Turkey-West Relations, because at the end of that book, I say that if Turkey ever abolishes the ban on death penalty, which is a red line that ne- that is never to be uh, crossed if Turkey wants to be ultimately a member of the European Union, <sighs> or if Turkey engages in a hot conflict with one of the European allies or the United States, because there have been some threats throughout the book, I have covered those threats uh, of uh, uh, a hot conflict between Turkey and the Western allies, then we are really moving into this hard balancing territory. And in this new book uh, that I am about to launch uh, my uh, research into, uh, we will be talking about, I will be talking about uh, the changes to the balance of power in the Eastern Mediterranean by focusing on the foreign policies of the United States, France, uh, Cyprus, Greece, Turkey, and uh, see uh, uh, what implications uh, these uh, different countries' strategies have on transatlantic security relations.
0: Well, we'll have to have you back. Um, I've been talking to... (laughs) <laughs> no, it's great. It, I, I just want to say, you know, again, I'm an outsider to the subfield and to the uh, area study, but I learned a ton from this book, and it actually helps me make sense of the things that I do read in the newspaper and do process in a in a, a really comprehensive and nuanced way. So I'm I'm really pleased to have been able to engage with the book. Um, The book is uh, Dr. Oya Dershan Oskanja's uh, Turkey West Relations, the Politics of Intra-Alliance Opposition. It's published by Cambridge University Press. We will have links to buy it on bookshop.org. And we're urging you, if you can walk into your brick and mortar bookstores to please support those independent bookstores that have had a really hard time in this last year. So Oya, thank you so much for joining us today on New Books. Thank
1: you very much for having me, Susan.